so good morning again. Uh, to my left, your right, is my big brother, as in much older brother than me, uh, who's uh, we're here visiting. Uh, thrilled to have uh, Drew, uh, Eleanor, his wife, uh, Livia, their youngest, uh, is here with us. It's great to have them with us. And um, like every good brother, when you take a vacation, you say, well, do you want to put in an extra day's work and come and bring us a message? And uh, so uh, great to have you with us, Drew. Andrew's, um, apart from being that much older than me, he's, uh, the, uh, he's, he serves as a bishop of the Anglican Diocese of New England, and have oversight of 39 churches uh, in that region. And uh, before that was leading a, a church in uh, Old Greenwich in Connecticut, which uh, grew from a few hundred to 1,200 uh, in the time of uh, that ministry with different, different sites being opened. And um, above or beyond those things, what I most appreciate is uh, his and his family's encouragement, their prayers to us, their support for us always, whether we were in Brazil, Kitchener, Waterloo, and now in Vancouver. Uh, we've always known your love and your support and uh, really uh, very much appreciate that. So let me pray for him as he shares the word. And uh, we want you to feel welcome, and uh, we know that the Lord is going to speak through you this morning. So why don't we pray uh, for my brother. Lord, uh, thank you for Drew. Lord, thank you for bringing him uh, with his family here. And uh, Lord, for what you have laid on his heart to share with us this morning. Lord, may it be to us all that you would purpose. Uh, and may it be to him a joy uh, and uh, a delight to share. Uh, Father, open our hearts, open our minds. And would you speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. It really is good to be here. I feel like I've kind of been vicariously a member of Granville Chapel for about 10 years. So it's really, it's nice to finally get invited. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I think in, in, the, in the best and most godly way, I think it's always a beautiful thing where a community, a family, take on the, the heart of, of their leadership. And I think just being with you, I just really appreciate, I, can, I feel through you, Andy's great love for Jesus and his kindness. Um, just, just being here in the first five minutes this morning, I'm like, well, there it is. This great, profound love for Jesus and extraordinary kindness. So bless you. It's, it is really, it's really refreshing, actually, to be here, truly, really refreshing for my spirit. I was hearing testimony before about folk arriving here and just knowing the Spirit of God is here. God is alive in this place, and that is absolutely true. So, amen. There is um, an author. I've told this is a bit precarious. I'm moving this really gently. Oh, no, look, it's all right. Don't mess with other people's furniture in other churches. That's a good rule. You never know. There's a, an, an author, uh, he, he's in kind of Christian counseling and neuropsychology, he's called Dr. Edward Welch, and when he was first studying, he was doing his PhD studies, and, and he had a class, and he's teaching, and, and as part of his studies, he's asked the class, he said, look, okay, how many of you have ever experienced shame? And in a group of about 30 students, not one hand went up. And he thought, this is curious. So he, he kind of reframed the question, he said, okay, how many of you ever have ever experienced debilitating shame? Every single hand went up. There is, if you like, there is an appropriate kind of shame, 
I think that the carry it's, it's really, I think, perhaps better termed remorse or even godly sorrow. And that's when the Spirit touches our heart and we say, Ah, oh, Lord, I let you down. I didn't do what I should have done or I did what I said I wouldn't do and I'm really sorry. And it's, it's a remorse that drives us towards the mercy of Jesus. And it's, it's a good godly sorrow. It's a gift, actually. It's part of the grace of God. But there's another kind of shame, if you will, we'll call it toxic shame, that's highly debilitating and moves us away from God. And you've only got to look at Adam and Eve in the garden. In those opening moments, what did they do in, in shame? They went and hid. They hid from God. There's not one definition of toxic shame, but it distinguishes itself by this deep sense that we are somehow unacceptable, either something that we did or something that was done to us or something that is associated with us. We feel disgrace because we acted less than human or we were treated less than human. And it's pervasive. It stalks beneath a myriad other problems. So anger, fear, guilt, all shame kind of bubbles away underneath, the, underneath those things. And it, it attaches and embeds itself within our souls so we come to believe that it actually is the truth about ourselves. And it's very adept at sounding like our own voice. It literally can throw its voice and sound like us. It can be an insidious, constant assault. And I wonder if you think I'm overstating things. Well, let me ask you if this or some version of this is remotely familiar to you. So you wake up at 6 a.m. and you open your eyes and your shame attendant is ready to greet you with the words, you should have gone to bed earlier. <laughs> you really didn't get enough sleep. And, you know, what were you thinking? And then you kind of struggle to the bathroom, you take a shower, and your first thought is, I just shouldn't have eaten all those cookies last night. I really shouldn't. You shouldn't have eaten those cookies. You get into the car, and you turn on the ignition, and shame whispers that your day is not going to go well because you haven't prepared nearly well enough for that difficult meeting you've got around lunchtime. And by the way, you didn't get enough sleep. So it's merciless. It robs us of our relationship with God and each other, and it kills... Um, hope and steals our joy. It's not a mirage. It's very, very real. And wishful thinking and self-affirmation and medication and alcohol or a change of scene or a new job, none of this fix toxic shame. Shame demands something much more potent than any superficial remedy. So in the Gospel account that Sue read to us this morning, what we find is Jesus, early in the morning, he's gone to the temple and the crowds discover him and he's sitting down, which is the kind of classic rabbinic tradition. So if I was going to be really Jesus-like this morning, I'd sit down on the step and talk to you. And the scene is interrupted as the scribes and the Pharisees push this poor woman before Jesus with the accusation that she's been caught in the act of adultery. And the scene is wretched and shameful. And here is shame that is publicly exposing and and it strips her of all her humanity it says she has no value save but to satisfy the law and the bloodlust of the crowd and Deuteronomy chapter 22 says in cases of proven adultery the answer is for a mandatory death penalty by stoning so how does Jesus respond to this woman's shame 
Because in her story and in Jesus' response, we find our story, our freedom and healing in Christ. So Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And then we read, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. He wrote twice on the ground with his finger. You know, this is the only recorded moment in the Gospels when Jesus is actually, you know, described as writing something down, and we don't know what he said. <laughs> there are some theories. Maybe Jesus is playing for time. That would have been me. <laughs> Maybe he's deep in thought or prayer. I did hear it said once that he's actually writing in the sand the names of other people in the crowd who committed adultery. That's kind of interesting. I'm not sure. I actually think he's being much more deliberate. Much more deliberate. There are two specific instances in the Bible where God is described as writing with his finger. There's Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 17. It says, Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. That's one instance. And then in Daniel, if you remember the book of Daniel, in King Belshazzar's palace, the hand appears and it writes with uh, a finger on the wall of the king's palace and Daniel interprets. And do you remember it's, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Quite disturbing. Daniel 5.27. And what we have here with Jesus bent down, writing in the sand with his finger, is what we understand as a parabolic action. Because when Jesus did that, the Pharisees who know these scriptures, their minds immediately make the connection to those scriptures. Daniel 5, 6, it says, then, he, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the Pharisees in this account are now sharing a similar physical reaction to Jesus writing on the sand. Because Jesus is communicating to her accusers in all your cold mercilessness and unforgiveness, you are those of whom these scriptures speak. That's what he's saying. He need not have written it out in the sand, just the gesture was enough. In writing in the sand, Jesus silences their accusation of shame. It's like, whoosh, stops. He rejects their unforgiveness and their mercilessness. And it may be that the Pharisees are thinking, look, we're just being faithful to the law here. And Jesus is saying, but if you really knew the law, if you truly knew the heart of God, you would find mercy and not condemnation. Think of the book of Hosea. God rebukes the people of God, there's scandalous unfaithfulness, horrendous infidelity, so much so that he refers to them as an unfaithful spouse. And yet, in the face of their heartbreaking unfaithfulness, the Lord says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. It's chapter 14, verse 49. Shame's voice within us has a very predictable script. 
the enemy actually only has three things to say. You never were any good. You are no good. You never will be any good. In the healing of toxic shame, Jesus will always begin by silencing that voice of condemnation. Let me show you another example. There's Joshua the high priest. Not, not the sidekick Joshua, but a bit later on, the high priest. And there's this moment in the book of Zechariah where Satan is standing at his side, accusing him, and it's clear that he has no defense. His head is held low. And the Lord's response is immediate and overpowering. We read, this is Zechariah 3.2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Silence. Jesus will always derail the enemy's accusations. And in the silence, in the silence, he will lead us into mercy, which is what we find here. So Jesus straightened up and said to the crowd, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until it was only Jesus left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. He silences the accuser, and in compassion, he chooses to stand with her. If you look in his compassion, Jesus is always standing at this woman's side. She's thrown at his feet, and he never moves, initially to protect her, to shield her. And now, as the crowd moves away, and it's just the woman and Jesus, and if you like, you can kind of see the, the dust settling with those, these rocks are kind of dropped to the ground and there's kind of shuffling backwards and it's just in the silence and the dust settling. It's just Jesus and just this woman. And in that moment, Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And you've got to ask yourself, why would he ask her the question that he already knows the answer to? Why would he ask her the question that he already knows the answer to? We know that Jesus is in the habit of doing that, isn't he? God is always asking us questions that he knows the answer to. Why does he do that? Because he's making space in her heart that she can see the largeness of what is going on. He's like slowing everything down. He's making this space in her heart where he can pour his mercy pushing, pushing out her heart to receive. And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. No matter what you have ever heard about God, there is his heart right there. Neither do I condemn you. Five words. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus is the only one in the crowd without sin. He's the only one who could legitimately have cast a first stone. And he is the one who chooses not to condemn her, but to stand with her and to shield her and to forgive her. Neither do I condemn you. It's worth remembering here that in Jesus, this is God incarnate. 
This is the embodiment of all that is holy. This is the I am who met with Moses at Mount Sinai, who now stands before an adulterer and says, I do not condemn you. This is the radical, scandalous mercy of God. For God did not send his, world into, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And at the very heart of God is mercy. See, shame is merciless. It cherry-picks our life for those moments that kind of haunt us, the things that we didn't do when we should have done them, or the things that we did that we know that we should have done, and it'll cherry-pick those moments and thrash us with them. And we imagine that God feels the same way about us that we do, that if all this came to light... Jesus would just throw up his arms in disgust and reject us. And we think that because that's our response to ourselves. And the truth is that he does throw open his arms. But not to reject us, to embrace us. On the cross, Paul reminds us, how much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus silences the accuser. And in that silence, in his compassion, he stands with us and speaks his word of mercy. And then here we see him exchange his life for her life. When Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin, this statement is not a threat, but it's an invitation that is offered in love. It's an invitation that allows for the freely given love that Jesus has lavished on her to permeate now the whole of her existence and her relationship with God and with others. That's the invitation. It's a love that radically changes her identity. Because you've got to ask yourself, has this woman ever really been loved for the person Jesus made her to be? Because certainly here her lover is absent, and he's as culpable and equally liable as she is, and he's nowhere to be found. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't care about her. She's just a pawn to bring Jesus down. Jesus came especially to redeem you from exactly this situation, to show you how much you are loved for yourself, freely, without any preconditions. Jesus reveals to this woman and to us that he does not love her the way that others have, that is like to possess her or, or to use her. He makes a gift of love that is wholly directed towards her so that she can recover her identity as a beloved child of God, the way the Father always made her to be. And he does the same for us. How does he do this? Well, in the supremacy of his love, he took upon himself the burden of her sin all the torment of her shame. And she walks into freedom, into new life, 
and Jesus went to the cross. We kind of finish by asking this. So how, how did it all work out for her then? How did it, how, how do we think the story kind of went on from here? I mean, we don't know, but how, how do you think she did? Well, Jesus does give us this insight. This is from Luke chapter 7. Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee named Simon. And he says, look, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Only the love and mercy of God has the power to transform us from the inside out. Her new life is not forged upon her now living a perfect, sinless life. It is transformed by the ongoing love and mercy of God. And so it is for us. I think we do the church a grave, grave disservice when often from the pulpit the suggestion seems to be, yes, I came to faith in Jesus Christ 25 years ago and from that moment on I've just lived this absolutely perfect and holy life. How's things going for you? How is that going for you? I mean, I mean one of the great claims, true claims, came through the Reformation. We are both saints and we are sinners. We are. You know, I mean, if, if, if am I going to set this off if I start walking around? So let's say this, this straight, so this is me. Like, okay, I've given my life to Jesus. Yes, praise God. I'm going to walk this straight line of perfect living in the love of Jesus. Look at me, I'm doing rather well. My gosh, I'm at the, look at this, look at this. I'm, oh no, that will be pride. And what happens in those moments is it's the grace, it's the love of God that then pulls us back into his presence. There is grace for grace, if you know. I mean, the only reason why we know when we come to those moments where we say, oh, Lord, I need your mercy, is because we're already standing in his grace. There is grace for grace. How extraordinary is that? But it's true. Why? Because we need it. And it's called sanctification. We don't talk about it often enough. You know, I think it was Henri Nouwen that said, only, only, God that can make, only God can make forgiveness something glorious to remember. I think that's so important. Because, you know, another, another piece of our heart is mind. Another piece of our heart is dredged. And, you know, what we didn't even want to acknowledge was there kind of comes into focus and we're like, oh, my gosh. And we give it to Jesus. And we are made over in his image. I'm not pulling a Rasputin on you. I'm not saying, so go on and sin freely, because I'm not. But we are saints and we are sinners, and we will mess up, and there is grace for that. The cross is for our sins yesterday, today, and for tomorrow, because we are a work in progress. We are a work in progress. And this woman, when Jesus says, go and sin no more, it is his love and mercy that will continue to hold her and refine her and bring her back to his love again and again and again. It's not her perfect living. 
It's his love and mercy at work in her heart, bringing her back to that truth, bringing her back to the scandal of his grace again and again and again. And so it is with us. So it is with us. I was talking to someone who they're a clergy person. They said to me, gosh, you think this process of sanctification, you know, will ever be, will ever be done with it? It's like, well, yes, but then you'll be with Jesus. Like, until that moment, no. Because <laughs> I think we forget just how beautiful and extraordinary Jesus is. You know, to be made in his likeness. We're like, oh yeah, okay. That's probably a slightly milder, better version of myself. No, it's <laughs> radically different. Radically different. Radically different. He is beautiful and glorious and his mercy just brings us to our knees and makes us weep and somehow we will be made like him but it's a process it's a it is a merciful gracious love soaked process let's go back up Let me just finish with one story, last story. When I, when I first came to faith, I was just so overwhelmed that Jesus loved me. I was so overwhelmed that Jesus was real. You know, I mean, that was, I mean, if you've done Alpha, for me, I, I did Alpha as a non-believer or vaguely somewhere-ish, but... There was a huge revelation in the Alpha Course for me that Jesus actually historically existed. I mean, it was, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. I thought he was kind of a, you know, a nice myth, you know, but, and then that he knew my name and that he loved me. Oh my gosh, that just was extraordinary. And then it was kind of just a little bit later, like a month later, I was like, oh my gosh, my life is a mess. <laughs> my heart is terrible. Like I need to let the mercy of God in. So it was, his love led me, his kindness of God led me, you know, into repentance without doubt. For me, that was the way it was. Not because I was a sinless person, but just, I was just so overwhelmed with his love and his, the reality of his presence. And then, then came, uh, you know, that, that revelation. And, and I, I brought my life to Jesus. I asked his forgiveness and, but there was one particular season in my life that I just couldn't shake this kind of sense of shame. And, and as many times as I asked God to forgive me, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't receive it. I, I was left with that sense of how could God use me with that in my life? How, how could I be of any use to God with this in my life? And I, I just stumbled there. Well, in those days, I, was, I had about a 40-minute commute in the car, and, um, and I would kind of put on the most extraordinary worship services in my car. Just, they were marvelous. I'd have, it was these days of cassette tape. You remember those, you're not that young. Cassette tapes. <laughs> and uh, and I'd, so I'd, I'd have worship music from HDB in the day, and, and I'd have different speakers. And, but I remember, so in one of these wonderful, marvelous worship services in my own car, um, I was listening to this talk and this guy was describing how he had taken his team, his staff, he's a church leader, and he'd taken his staff team to a conference and during the conference, the, the guy who was leading it, who had a kind of prophetic gift, called out the entire team and said, do you know what, I just feel the Lord wants to really bless you, I'm going to pray prophetically over each of you. I mean, what a blessing, what an extraordinary thing. And this guy has a very uh, beautiful prophetic gift and and was able to pray um, for 
just in a very personal and wonderful way for each person. And this was tremendous. What a blessing, except for this young girl who's at the end. And she has, as is described in this talk, come to a living faith in Jesus Christ, brought her Lord before Jesus, but there was an episode in her life that she just cannot shake this sense of guilt and shame over. And as much as she has prayed, she's just left with this lingering sense of how could God possibly love me or use me with that in my life? And I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me. So I am gripped listening to this story. So back to the story, the guy is making his way along the line and, and the wonderful, rich, prophetic prayers are being prayed and it's just a, this beautiful moment of uh, you know, encountering God and people are weeping and the congregation is weeping and the Spirit of God is there. It's all wonderful, except for this poor girl at the end who's like, oh my gosh, well, this is it. Because when he lays his hands on me, this, you know, this, this awful thing in my past is going to be laid bare because, frankly, it should be. That's what I deserve. It will all be exposed, and that's what I deserve. I've always kind of been, I've had this, and I brought it to the Lord, but I can't shake the sense of guilt and shame, and here's this moment of it all being exposed, because that's what I deserve. So finally, the guy gets and puts his hand on her shoulder, and he says, oh, gosh, there's just something in your heart that you've always struggled to receive God's mercy for. She's like, this is it, this is it. This is the moment I've always dreaded, and so it should be, because this is what I deserve. And he said, you know, there's just something in your heart, and you've, you've brought it to the Lord, and you've repented, but you've just always felt this sting of shame. You've always felt unlovable, and that you, you couldn't ever, you know, serve the Lord, because, and I'm, on the, I'm holding the steering wheel in the car. And he said, of that, of that sin... This is what the Lord says. I don't remember it. I don't remember it. This sin has haunted you and has made you feel despoiled. And I, the Lord, I don't remember it. I don't remember it. For I will forgive their wickedness. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Romans 8.12 I almost put the car in a hedge. I don't remember it. I remember saying to the Lord, how can you say I don't remember it? Like, you know everything. And he said, just quietly, I felt the Lord say to me, because I choose not to remember it. In my mercy, in my love, I choose not to remember it. Our freedom in Christ is formed by living in response to the love and mercy of God. It is a love that will always lead us back to his mercy. That time and time and time again, in the fullness of his love and compassion, he will silence the accuser. Stand with us and love us at our very worst. Forgive us our sin when we have absolutely no shred of defense. And heal us. And set us free from the bondage of shame. Amen.